0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Two states have laws that allow employers to opt out of state-regulated workers' compensation systems, Oklahoma and Texas. Texas always has had this law, and Oklahoma recently adopted a similar one. Tennessee lawmakers introduced their own version of opt-out legislation, which failed to become law. But now we're back to just one opt-out state, Texas. The Oklahoma Supreme Court struck down the opt-out provision of the state's workers' compensation law, ruling it is an unconstitutional special law. The 72 ruling said the opt-out provision creates impermissible, unequal, disparate treatment of injured workers and does not guarantee all employees the same rights when a work-related injury occurs in violation of the Oklahoma Constitution. Oklahoma's Opt-Out Act allows employers to opt out of the state's workers' compensation system and create their own plan. But employers who create their own plans can include conditions for recovery that make it more difficult for an injured worker to recover for a work-related injury than someone covered by the state's plan. The court found that the statutory language itself demonstrates that injured workers under the Opt-Out Act have no protection to the coverage, process, or procedure afforded their fellow employees. The case involves a work-related injury sustained by Johnny Yvonne Vasquez, an employee of Dillard's Department Stores. Vasquez alleged she injured her neck and shoulder while lifting shoeboxes in September 2014. The ruling states that it applies to her case as well as all other cases on appeal and pending before the Workers' Compensation Commission. 65 employers has elected, have elected to leave the Oklahoma Workers' Compensation System and create their own plans. In a dissenting opinion, justices said they would not invalidate the entire opt-out provisions, but instead would require the Workers' Compensation Commission to require the employer's plan to meet certain requirements. The Oklahoma Attorney General said the Supreme Court's ruling was out of touch and an attempt to reverse legislative actions that he said had lowered the cost of workers' compensation insurance in the state. He added that the decision is yet another action by the Oklahoma Supreme Court that dismantles these reforms piece by piece. The ruling is the latest setback for sweeping Oklahoma workers' compensation guidelines adopted by the legislature in 2013. Last April, the Supreme Court invalidated provisions that allowed deferral of payments for permanent partial disability for workers who eventually returned to their jobs. Revamping the state's workers' compensation system has been a priority for Republican legislative leaders who claim the state's previous system was a detriment to business and industry in the state. Republican Governor Mary Fallin has also supported changes in the law. But 38 separate provisions of the 2013 Workers' Compensation Law in Oklahoma have been found unconstitutional, inoperable, or invalid since they went into effect. Three days after the Berkshire Hathaway subsidiaries applied underwriters, and its California insurance company affiliate agreed to stop selling disputed workers' compensation policies in California, the company has again been sued. A New York bicycle courier company alleges another illegal scheme to cheat employers buying workers' compensation policies. California's insurance commissioner ruled against Berkshire in June in a similar case after determining that the company duped a small business, Shasta Linen Supply and circumvented an administrative review of rates. Earlier this month, the company agreed to stop selling the policies in dispute in California. The California Department of Insurance said the Berkshire businesses charged customers rates which had not been approved by the regulator. The new civil complaint filed by Breakaway Courier Systems came as Berkshire's Applied Underwriters Unit faces scrutiny over its workers' compensation policies also in Vermont and Wisconsin. Breakaway, with about 300 employees, accused Berkshire and Applied of siphoning premiums through a web of illegal shell companies with diverted premiums going to unlicensed out-of-state insurers. They claim the plan amounted to a reverse Ponzi scheme where unsuspecting employers thought they were buying affordable policies. But instead, they bought costly reinsurance requiring them to cover each other's losses, leaving taxpayers on the hook for shortfalls when too many workers are injured on the job. The employer claims Berkshire's schemes break multiple laws. The lawsuit filed in Manhattan seeks at least $18 million of damages, plus a declaration that the reinsurance participation agreements are void and against public policy. The case shines a spotlight on a lesser-known part of Berkshire's insurance operations, which also include GEICO car insurance and general reinsurance. In a recently settled California case, both insurers denied wrongdoing. But the California Insurance Commissioner said their sale of a policy to Shasta Linen Supply subjected the employers of to hundreds of thousands of dollars of extra costs. Similarly, New York's Insurance Department said in a filing which accompanied the civil complaint that Breakaway's policy put that company at imminent financial risk and was not understandable by ordinary purchasers. Central Freight Lines Incorporated and Trendsetter HR have settled a lawsuit over workers' compensation ending their three year litigated dispute. Central Freight Lines ranks number 94 on the Transportation Topics Top 100 list of the largest U.S. and Canadian four hire carriers and has operations here in California. The employer signed a deal with Trendsetter in 2008 to perform administrative services for the company and its employees. Central Freight alleged that for more than three years, Trendsetter accepted payments but failed to deposit the funds for workers' compensation coverage. Central Freight stopped making payments after it conducted an audit and Trendsetter sued them for breach of contract in 2013. However, a jury in December 2015 ruled that Trendsetter breached the contract and awarded Central Freight $1.85 million. Jurors found that Trendsetter HR and its owner failed to honor the terms of the contract and wrongfully billed Central Freight for services and coverage that were never provided. Central Freight is asking that interest be added to the verdict amount, which could push the final award to more than $2 million. The case was on appeal when the deal was reached, and the terms of the settlement between the two litigants were not disclosed. Trendsetter also sued AIG for failure to provide workers' compensation to Central Freight Lines, claiming that it directed the insurer to do so. That case is ongoing. And now our crime report. Thomas M. Calderon, a former member of the California State Assembly, was sentenced to one year and one day of incarceration after he pleaded guilty to money laundering for allowing bribe money to be funneled through his company. The United States District Judge ordered that the sentence be served half in federal prison and half in home detention. He was also ordered to serve 100 hours of community service. Back on June 6, he pleaded guilty to one count of money laundering and admitted that he agreed to conceal bribe payments coming from two undercover FBI agents by having the money go through his political consulting company, the Calderon Group. The bribes were made to Tom Calderon's brother, Ronald S. Calderon, who at the time was a California state senator. Ron Calderon also pleaded guilty on June 21 and admitted to accepting bribes from the undercover agents and a businessman in exchange for performing official acts as a legislator. Tom Calderon and his brother were both indicted by a federal grand jury in 2014. And in regulatory news, the Return to Work Supplement Program was established by the legislature as part of SB 863. The intent was to provide supplemental payments to workers whose workers' compensation permanent disability benefits are disproportionately low in comparison to their earnings loss. After the law took effect in January 2013, The Department, in cooperation with the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, commissioned an implementation study from the RAND Corporation. Guided by the RAND study, the Department developed and adopted the corresponding regulations, which became effective on April 6, 2015. And the Department began accepting applications for the Return to Work program on April 13, 2015. But... The California Applicants' Attorneys Association used provisions of the government code to petition the Director of Industrial Relations asking for the changes which are the subject matter of these amendments. Cause claimed that extension to the application deadline was necessary because injured workers who received a voucher on or before the implementation date of the return-to-work supplement application process would no longer be able to apply for a return-to-work supplement benefit after April 13, 2016. This was despite the fact that those individuals had not received notice of their eligibility to to apply for the benefit when they received their vouchers. Cause petition also notes that the voucher form was not updated to include the required notice until approximately December 1, 2015. Caw believes that there was lower-than-expected number of applicants who applied for the program in 2015. Less than 12,000, when at least 24,000 were projected by the RAND study, and this was largely due to this lack of notice of eligibility. Thus, the department conducted a public hearing on Caw's petition in April 15, 2016, and determined to proceed with the rulemaking to amend the regulations. The proposed amendment extends the application deadline for individuals who became eligible for the benefit prior to December 1, 2015. So now, a public hearing has been scheduled at 10 o'clock a.m. on Monday, October 31, 2016, in Room 7 of the second floor of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comments until 5 p.m. that day, The proposed amendment and related documents can be found on the DIR website. The Division of Workers' Compensation also posted amended draft regulations to implement a fee schedule for home health care services. Their proposed regulations set forth a payment methodology and fees for services provided to injured workers in the home setting. This includes skilled care by licensed medical professionals, as well as unskilled personal care and domestic services. SB 863 requires the DWC's administrative director to establish a fee schedule for home health care services. Following the initial draft of these regulations, a public hearing was set last November 2015 for comment. Upon review of the comments received, the DWC has amended its regulations to provide additional detail and clarity. The regulations also refer to a medical treatment utilization schedule which covers home health care services. The updated notice and draft regulation text are posted online. And in medical news, Taro Pharmaceutical Industries and two of its senior officers received grand jury subpoenas in connection with a federal antitrust investigation into its generic drug pricing. The company disclosed this in an SEC filing required by all publicly held corporations. The company says it intends to respond to the subpoena and otherwise cooperate with the Department of Justice investigation. Taro is the maker of many popular generic and over-the-counter ointments, including antibiotic pain relief and hydrocortisone creams used to relieve itching and minor skin rashes. It also manufactures prescription creams such as Clobetasol, which treats a variety of skin disorders, including eczema and psoriasis. The Boston Globe recently reported concerns about the rising prices of some generic drugs, including Clobetasol, which is made by several companies. The newspaper reported that the price of Clobetasol rose from $0.26 cents to a gram in just two years. The rising cost of prescription medications has become a high-profile issue over the past year with various companies coming under scrutiny for drastically raising prices. Companies including Valiant Pharmaceuticals and Turing Pharmaceuticals were both targets of congressional investigations earlier this year for hiking the price of life-saving drugs. Turing is also facing antitrust probes by the Federal Trade Commission and the New York Attorney General. Separately, Valiant faces investigations by federal prosecutors into its pricing and distribution. More recently, Milan NV has come under fire for raising the price of its allergy auto-injector EpiPen. The New York Attorney General disclosed earlier this month he had launched an antitrust probe into the company's contracts to provide EpiPens to schools. The company is also facing congressional probes. The issue has also resonated on the campaign trail for the White House. Despite a decline since 2013, pharmaceutical costs for California workers' compensation indemnity claims at six months post-injury increased by 217% from 2005 through 2014. For claims lasting 10 years or more, drugs account for 37% of all medical costs, contributing to California's rank as the state with the longest durations for workers' compensation claims in the nation. Although many factors have contributed to the long-term escalation of workers' compensation drug costs, there are concerns in California as well as in other states about the possible impact of physician drug dispensing. This concern stems from a potential financial incentive for physicians that both prescribe and dispense medication at the same time. A 2006 study by the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation revealed that 50% of all drug payments were made to physicians dispensing repackaged drugs. This resulted in $223 million in additional costs to workers' compensation payers. This practice involved prescribing repackaged drugs at higher costs than the same drugs were available at pharmacies. The Division of Workers' Compensation addressed this issue in March of 2007 through an administrative regulation which equalized payment levels for repackaged physician-dispensed drugs and drugs dispensed by pharmacies. This change appeared to reduce physician dispensing for some drugs while opening the door for dispensing of compound medication not covered by the California Medi-Cal-based pharmacy fee schedule applicable to pharmaceuticals in the California system. The WCIRB has released, therefore, a new report to see how the new regulation is working. The report analyzed $500 million in workers' compensation pharmaceutical payments from July 2012 through December 2015. WCIRB researchers used reported medical payment data representing more than 90% of the California workers' compensation insurance market they found that the share of pharmacy payments directly dispensing physicians dropped by 20% over the 42-month period. The reduction was driven by a lower number of prescriptions or utilization. This decline occurred across all major types of drugs and was especially apparent for opiate analgesics, the most prominent type of workers' compensation drug. For base substances used for compounded drugs, the share paid directly to physician dispensers decreased by approximately 50%. Despite the overall drop in payment shares, physicians received higher per-transaction reimbursements for specific drugs, including some opiate analgesics and stomach discomfort medications. In addition, Provider physicians generally dispense the most expensive drugs within these categories, although lower-cost therapeutic equivalents were often available in pharmacies. These results help explain the WCIRB findings showing a 28% reduction in drug spending per claim from the second half of 2012 through the second half of 2015. This trend may be attributed to many factors, including the introduction of independent medical review and the greater attention across the country as to the potential overuse of opiates. The study suggests that the reduction in drug payments to physician dispensers may be another underlying factor in the overall decline in drug costs per claim over the last several years. State health... State and federal health regulators say the connection between opiate pain pills and heroin addiction has now reached epidemic proportions. Yet it is uncommon for anyone in the workers' compensation claim industry to be aware of even a single case where an injured worker is involved in heroin or concurrent use of illegal substances. What are the odds that workers' compensation claimants are free of illegal drug use? Well, a new study published in Spine concludes that the odds are fairly high that people living with chronic low back pain are more likely to be using illicit drugs, including marijuana, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, compared to those without back pain. In addition, Low back pain patients with a history of illicit drug use are more likely to have a current prescription for opioid analgesic drugs, according to the new research. The patterns of illicit drug use may have implications for decisions about prescribing opiates for patients with back pain. The researchers analyzed survey responses from more than 5,000 U.S. adults from a national representative health study. About 13% of these respondents met the study definition of chronic low back pain present for three months or longer. The confidential survey also asked participants about their use of illicit drugs, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. The results suggested that back pain was linked to higher rates of illicit drug use. About 49% of adults with Chronic low back pain said they had, they had ever used illicit drugs compared to 43% of those without chronic low back pain. Rates of current illicit drug use, meaning within the past 30 days, were also higher in the chronic low back pain group, 14% versus 9%. All four specific drugs in the survey were more commonly used by respondents with chronic low back pain. Also, participants with chronic low back pain were more than twice as likely to report methamphetamine and heroin use. The results also suggested a link between illicit drugs and prescription opioids. Prescription opioids are widely widely used by patients with chronic low back pain, raising concerns about addiction, misuse, and accidental overdose. Previous studies have found that people with a history of illicit drug use are more likely to misuse prescription opioids. This new study is one of the first to focus on rates of illegal use among Americans with chronic low back pain. And in other news, according to a new special report from AM Best, the workers' compensation market has likely entered a soft market phase based on a declining trend in price increases that began in 2013. The special report saw rate declines in the first quarter of 2015 that have persisted through the second quarter of 2016 in tandem with the more competitive environment in property casualty commercial lines in general. This conclusion was drawn as part of AM Best's annual report on the state workers' compensation funds sector. Net premiums written within this segment increased for the fifth consecutive year in 2015, growing from 2.4% to $8.6 billion, the biggest premium level since 2006. The report cites concerns going forward, such as the recent declining trend in workers' compensation pricing, the prolonged low-interest-rate environment, the potential for less favorable reserve development, and the uncertainties relating to potential workers' compensation legislation and health care reform. State funds mainly compete for workers' compensation business while also serving as their respective state's guaranteed market. Some businesses that find it more difficult to afford or secure coverage in the voluntary market during hard market conditions often turned to state funds. This was likely a contributing factor to the growth of state funds over the past several years. Collectively, state funds' net written written premium uh, equated to 18% of the total U.S. workers' compensation premium in 2015, flat in comparison with 18% in 2014, but above the low of 15% in 2011. The significance of state funds also is apparent in their respective state market shares. For 2015, seven of the 18 state funds had market shares of at least 50% in their respective states, and each one ranked first in its state based upon direct premiums written. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Lloyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.